You're listening to the More on Manufacturing podcast, where we talk about improving the value and operation of your business. Join Mike, Kevin, and the occasional guest for the latest on sales optimization, operational leadership, cash flow management, lean strategies, preparing for the sale of your company, business intelligence, and much more. Hi, I'm Mike Sibley, leader of the James Moore Manufacturing Team. I'm here with Kevin Golden, one of my partners and a member of the James Moore Manufacturing Team as well. Joining us on today's episode is Ed Marsh. He is a business management consultant and principal with Concilium Global Business Advisors. He works with lower middle market industrial manufacturers with strategy and revenue growth. And part of, as everybody knows, as part of this show, we talk about creating value, building value in the business. And today we're we're taking a, a, an approach again to discuss kind of the the the, pro, the sales and marketing, creating value through sales and marketing and process improvements, and really looking at changing the manufacturer's mindset uh, from from you know looking at a long term value for the business. And Ed's background has been in uh, working with a lot of different businesses. As I said, he's worked in. Uh, actually a former export advisor to American Express and actually awarded the presidential e-award, which was pretty neat by President Obama, uh, graduate of John Hopkins, former Ranger, qualified Army paratrooper, and service-disabled veteran. So, Ed, thanks for uh, your service uh, for the country and everything you've done there. But Ed, Ed's got an expertise in, in building a value in, in the sales and marketing side of things, and we really want to bring a different direction here. So, Ed, uh, thanks for thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I love talking about manufacturing and I love talking about revenue growth and gentlemen like yourselves that have a, a great show and a great platform and dive into different topics. It's always a pleasure to talk with folks like you. Yeah, Ed, well, thanks for joining us. And like Mike said, you know, one of the fo- primary focuses of this show is increasing value of your business. I mean, there's a lot of different things you can do that. And as Mike said, you had a lot of background on that. So can you please give us a little bit of the insights or some insights more specific components that that you see uh, people and manufacturers can use in their business to create value. Yeah, and I'll quickly, I'll drive my headlights talking about the accounting side of it. So if I say something stupid, just jump in and correct me. But basically- <laughs> Hey, don't, don't worry. We're, we're always there to, you know, to help along that side of things. So, All right. So, uh, so, so if value is ultimately the value today of future earnings, then how can, what can we do to as close to guarantee the 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 growth of those future earnings as possible and obviously keep them profitable. And my experience is that there's a great opportunity already within manufacturers to take the predictable, the, the, the mindset they have for process engineering and rigor and operations and bring that around to the front side of the business. And if we do that, if we take that process engineering mindset to the revenue growth, to strategy and marketing and sales and the technology that supports it, we've got an opportunity to do that. And that can make it more predictable. And 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 as soon as we do that, then we start to take some of the burden off. Often in companies like this, we see the founder is an incredibly charismatic and visionary person that often goes and it drives by virtue of their personality, drives a lot of the growth themselves. But if they're the key player, then you know, what happens if, if, if you talk about some sort of a transition plan? And so if we can build a system so that it's not just relying on that one amazing visionary person, but replicate their capability across people, it's great. It's, it's no different, I think, in many ways than taking, you know, companies have ISO 
processes or procedures they put in place for all aspects of their operation. But if you ask them about their sales process, well, you know, somebody calls up and uh, they ask for a quote and we get some technical details, we'll give them a quote and then we follow up and revise it. It's a completely different mindset. So let's just, let's just change it. As soon as you do that, then there's some other byproducts of it that I think help increase valuation. I mean, one is concentration risk. So many manufacturers that I talk to, if, if you look at their revenue, it follows a Pareto distribution exactly the way you know, it, 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 you'd expect it to, where um, repeat customers, repeat orders from existing customers constitute the vast majority of the revenue. That's not a bad thing. I mean, it's great. It's lower cost of acquisition and all of that, except it means that when you've got the comfort of that, that there often isn't pressure and expectation of the sales team to be going out and creating new accounts. And, and so if you can consistently go and create new accounts, obviously that protects you against the inevitable exigencies of business where something moves offshore, somebody goes out of business, somebody gets acquired, whatever the case may be. And, and then I'd say, you know, there may be a couple other ways, if you can implement this, a couple other ways that it starts to impact value. First of all, if you have consistent forecasts and reliable and accurate forecasts, then you're in a much stronger position when you talk to a potential acquirer or a strategic partner, or even your commercial lenders. If they know that your forecasts really are accurate, there's huge value in that. There's also an opportunity where in many cases, if somebody is actually talking about a transaction, I know many manufacturers aren't, they just kind of want to understand the potential value for various reasons, but if they're talking about a transaction, if they can increase the value of the organization, increase the multiple in which they're acquired by increasing the amount of the earnout on the deal, that can often be a way to, to increase their return. And of course, their willingness to accept an earnout, particularly a larger earnout, depends on their comfort that the process in place is actually going to yeah. work. Well, so that's one of the things you hear when you when you start talking about earnouts as owners, obviously, would rather not have an earnout if possible because, hey, you know, somebody else has taken over the business. I don't know how they're going to run it. Right. And perhaps we don't have that process or guarantee or that backlog or whatever it might be to feel very comfortable. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And and so I guess to kind of wrap up your question, Kevin, a lot of times I hear people asking, okay, I mean, it sounds great in theory, but how do you do it? And and so I'd say the neat thing is there's a couple of great models we can follow. One is, again, looking at the operational production, the manufacturing side of the business and all the incredibly valuable lessons that have been learned there and how do we apply them. The other is to look at technology companies. And I understand that may sound crazy because technology is very different than industrial manufacturing, but technology companies live in a world where they're under such intense pressure from investors to deliver monthly and quarterly return. They've done some amazing innovation over the last five or 10 years on revenue growth best practices. And so you don't have to build your business model after them, and you're not going to have 50% margins to support marketing expense in the industrial manufacturing world, but there's a lot that we can learn. So there's a couple of places we can look to quickly quickly adopt some of this. Well, yeah, I think- and, Go ahead, go ahead Kevin. No, no, go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, I was saying, I really like what you said early on about it. You know, take what you already know, right? Don't change yourself. Don't change everything you're doing. Unfortunately, people just inherently, I think, do that. Um, and the take what you know about what you're really good at, what that's why you're in business as a manufacturer, what you know, and just apply that. So I think it just people, it's sometimes it's a mindset that people don't think that, oh man, I've got to be somebody completely different or I'm going to have something completely different. There may be some slightly different components, but at its core, 
that's a great idea. Keeping that the same and just applying those same best practices now to your sales, um, you know, could then, you know, like you said, diversify there to where you're not just laying in that comfort zone, hoping everything's going to be okay you over here. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just, a couple of things that I, I find interesting because Kevin and I have been talking about a lot, you know, we start talking about value. You mentioned, you know, we start talking about what increases the value of a business. Well, if, if, if it's really dependent on an owner, well, that hurts the business. Lack of systems and processes, whether it's, you know, in accounting, sales, operations, wherever it is, you know, uh, a, a customer base that's not very diversified with concentrations hurts you. So all of those things you're talking about is, is actually sort of been a running theme for what we talk about. And I think taking this approach and looking at it on the sales side of things and the revenue growth side of things is, is a great aspect. But, you know, taking a twist and of course, Ed, you work with a lot of manufacturing and you've seen a lot of things. Oftentimes there's mindsets or shortcomings or challenges that, you know, you probably come up against. And, and maybe before we start talking about some opportunities and some ways to approach this, uh, you know, there may be, you know, quite a few manufacturers out there that might be able to relate to, hey, maybe I do fit that, those challenges or uh, I'm not, I'm not, maybe talk about that a little bit, some things you've seen that, that you've had to overcome. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And some depends on if it's a family business, a closely held family business. In that case, you know, the, the brother-in-law might've been the VP of sales for the last 73 years and, you know, claim they've forgotten more about sales than anyone else is ever going to know. So, you know, there can be a lot of factors. I would say, well, first, I mean, before we kind of jump into the hard part, the, the challenges, let's, let's go back to the good stuff. They've got such a strong process as, you know, going to Kevin's question with process engineering, and rigor in how they run their production and operations, we really do have a great base. And, and many of these companies went through kind of a, a crisis back in the mid 80s or 90s when they adapted to the, some of the, the Japanese manufacturing um, ideas <clears throat> and implemented continuous improvement and and Six Sigma and all those kinds of things. So they've they've almost had a rehearsal. They've been through one of those tough periods where they had to adapt and some of the people of the company didn't like it, and 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 uh, and they dealt with that. So they've got the process engineering mindset, they've got the rigor, they've they've had a dress rehearsal already, and we can now apply it to marketing and sales. I would say on the challenge side, you know, mindset is a problem. Um, there's a mindset about, well, this is the way we've always done it. There's uh, the, the kinds of things I hear. Well, our buyers don't use chatbots. Our industry is different. Our customers are, you know, X Y Z. And of course, the reality is you ask them, okay, well, how does this thing work in your company? If you're sitting there on Saturday morning wondering about something, what do you do? Well, I get on Google and I look for it. Well, you know, newsflash, your customers do the same thing. And many of those, you know, I work a lot with companies in the capital equipment space. So they're selling often to plant engineers and corporate engineers and folks like that who are retiring out. now. And there's younger generations that are coming in, younger generations that make decisions based on online reviews, for instance. And, you know, how does a manufacturing company that says, well, that's not the way our industry works, adapt to online reviews? Another place that I see, and, and this is a hard one, and, you know, some of your audience may want to just turn it off or shoot me when they hear this, but <laughs> I'll tell you a big problem, to, and, and the brutal truth is that nobody cares about your products. And that's a big challenge for most manufacturers because there's so much energy, there's years of research and development, there's... There's so much emotion attached to this tweak and that innovation and this iteration of it that often they 
define the world through their technology, through their products. Their customers don't. Their prospects don't. Their prospects would rather, uh, honestly, I would say their prospects would rather not have to buy it. Yes, they, they like the people that have good relationships. They've got a strong commercial relationship, but they'd rather not have to buy that. If their business would run fine without it, they'd prefer not to have to do it. So ultimately, buyers are trying to solve a problem for their business. And, and it's really hard, but critically important for manufacturers to shift that mindset to think as a buyer in order for this whole thing to work. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think your point about, I think the bigger point in mind, I don't think anybody's going to shut us off from, from uh, <laughs> that is, is, is what problem are you solving with your, with your product? Right. And so, you know, a good example, I've seen plenty of manufacturers create a product that nobody wants to buy. Right. And they thought it was a good idea and they seem, and it, and it did seem ingenious or whatever, but if no one's buying it, then that that's, you're, you're not solving a problem. Um, you know, sometimes you've seen great things where people solve a problem they didn't know they had, like, you know, take like an Amazon comes along. Well, nobody knew we needed something. I could order it online and get it an hour later or something right. like that, you know? So until it happened, now we don't know how we would do without it. But, you know, I, I do agree. And I think, you know, Kevin and I did a, did a conversation on the topic of getting out of, get it, crossing that imaginary line from operations uh, to the administrative side of things. Okay. And, you know, our focus was on the accounting side, but I agree with you that, you know, it, we see it all too often where all the training for employees in lean or, uh, you know, pro continuous improvement, those kind of things happen generally with your production people. Mm -hmm. And all too often, you know, process improvement or even processes. If you ask a lot of companies, you can go out you said they're ISO, they got a whole operations manual, how to do whatever. You cross that line, there are no, there's no documentation on procedures for almost anything. Right. And so, you know, I, I completely agree with you that, that that's a place. And then I guess, I guess getting into, you know, uh, how do you get employees on board with that becomes another challenge. Yeah. And I mean, a, a great, place to start is just thinking about the training. If you've got a marketing team and a sales team and you're training for them and every sales meeting and every conversation is about technical features of the equipment, then guess what? You're sending the message that, that that's what's important. On the other hand, if you have conversations about how to solve customer problems, is this something people need? Why do they need it? What's the justification? What does it save them? Why would they consider buying it? Why might they not? What's the risk in trying it? Those kinds of things, and I think will will help broaden people's understanding of it and improve the training. Well, and also, I mean, doing something like that, it's 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 almost incorporating in and, and, and getting that buy-in from somebody on that we're greater. Not only, like you said, those people may not care about your product. We're greater than our product, right? right. Yeah, we make a great product and all, but we, a people, we, a company, we as human beings are better than just the products we make. And I think everybody can stand behind something behind that and having those conversations. And we say this a lot in our own business, but also meetings like that aren't a one and done. This isn't something that you just go over. You say, great, now that's policy. Now that's <laughs> culture. Now that's part of it, right? Right. Uh, like you said, you've gone through some of these exercises a long time ago. It's nothing particularly brand, brand new, but it just hasn't been revisited. It hasn't been, you know, rehearsed and gone over and over and kind of become part of that second nature, if you will, of your business. So I think a good reminder too to people is that this isn't something that, okay, we're going to talk about more about, you know, incorporating all this into our sales and marketing and, and we are 
either the why behind what we're creating, what problem we're solving, and then we're done. No, it's something you continuously address over and over and improve upon to then it becomes second nature and part of who you want. And and the cultural change management piece is important. I mean, if you've got a sales team that's never filled out an A4 while their colleagues on the production floor routinely do, and you ask them to start holding themselves accountable to that kind of rigor, well, you're going to get some pushback. And <laughs> you know, at some point, you can you can articulate the rationale for it. You can describe the strategic vision. You can explain why it's important. At some point, part of it is also a condition of employment. You just have to you have to hold people accountable. Another piece is to is to tie in the full range of revenue growth. When you mentioned Mike products that have been created when there wasn't a customer demand, well, you know that's part of the strategy and the product marketing, and that blends into then the marketing function. And often in manufacturing companies, the marketing function is kind of the redheaded stepchild. There may be a half a person in some trade shows. The sales function gets a lot of money, not a lot of accountability. Technology is they put into the ERP system, and maybe they have a CRM, or maybe they use um, you know an Excel spreadsheet to track projects. So really, it has to be integrated from strategy through marketing through sales to technology in order to create this integrated framework that supports. So well, Ed, how? The, oh, go ahead, Kevin. I was going to say, let, let's just take for a quick example, and I'm I'm that company. I'm that manufacturing company. I do have the one or a half of marketing person that goes to the few trade shows, and that's it, right? Okay, so I can start by having you know where do I start? I mean, I can have a meeting, you know have everyone involved is, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is our mindset we're trying to think. Where do I go from there? How do I start incorporating and saying, okay, I mean, do I just go out and look for, I got to find a better marketing team or I've got to find a better sales team or or start with those current leaders and say, hey, we got to train how you think to kind of cross over what you do in the in the manufacturing realm into the sales and marketing team or kind of, where, where do I start? So, I mean, the real answer is that there's no consistent or easy answer. It depends on the culture and on the organization. I think at a high level, what's important is for management and ownership and the board, if they're involved, to buy into a common vision and and to do so with some sort of a framework so they understand how all the pieces fit together. They understand that this may be a three-year or a five-year sort of a journey. They understand that there are certainly going to be disappointments or frustrations along the way that they may lose some key people. Um, you know, they need to think through those kinds of things. Then my recommendation is to kind of parallel path. Number one, there's always opportunities for quick wins. And if you can get some quick wins and create some positive energy in the context of what you're talking about, that certainly makes some of the subsequent work easier. The other is to think of it as a maturity model. I mean, if we could define, I've got a framework that maybe has 200 different areas across revenue growth that I suggest the companies think about how they're doing in. And if you could think of each of those as a maturity model where a company could go through four or five stages of maturity and great companies may never even be in the fourth or fifth for many of those categories, and that's okay. But you can kind of start to prioritize and understand where you stand and, and what you need to do to move to another category. So if you can do that against prioritization, then you don't have this whole massive project sitting on top of you like, oh my goodness, where do we begin? But you've got a series of smaller projects that you can do in parallel while you've got some quick wins coming in. And I think that helps to kind of get companies moving in that direction. So Ed, you kind of talk about, and this may be getting a little more detailed here for a second uh, without getting too far, but this you know, overall revenue effectiveness is, uh, 
you know, what does that mean in terms, I, th I think you're kind of alluding to it in terms of a diagnostic that you use and, but, but what does that, what does that mean? What is that trying to get to in terms of, you know, bringing a company along in terms of processes and revenue growth and moving that down, down that so, so ORE, overall revenue effectiveness, is an analog to OEE, which I think many of your manufacturers are familiar with, overall equipment effectiveness. And the basic premise behind it is if you've got a line with 10 sequential steps and each, each operates at 97% efficiency, you know, you feel pretty good that 97% is pretty good, except when you look at the product across those 10 steps, my, my math isn't fast enough, but I think it makes you 83 or 85% efficient on that entire production line. We'll take, we'll take your word for it. We won't, we won't <laughs> <spend your> more. <laughs> and, and that, that suddenly doesn't feel like such a great accomplishment anymore. Right. And so if we can, again, take that mindset from manufacturing and production and apply it to revenue growth and think about each of the steps in this revenue growth system, you got a siren outside, hopefully you're not picking it up. Um, but at each of these steps in the revenue growth system, then we've got an opportunity if we look for, you know, one or two or 5% incremental improvement in a couple of them, then that's got a big net impact at the end of the process. And once we iterate that repeatedly over several years, then there's, you know, a big, a big net improvement in predictability and consistency. So if I'm understanding it right, then it's, it's really looking at each of those things along that line, along that timeline, whatever it might be and measuring the effectiveness of each one and then perhaps understanding which ones are less effective and focusing your efforts on improving that area to improve your overall revenue growth. That's true. And also understanding that they all feed into each other, that right. you don't just have a marketing department and then a sales group. It's an right. integrated effort. In a world where buyers are 70% of the way through their buying journey before they want to take, talk to a sales rep, the marketing department has to do a lot of the selling. And the sales department has to sell differently than they used to. So what might be an example of, uh, say, an area, you know, just an area you've seen that was really lagging or, you know, and, and you were able to point a manufacturer into saying, hey, this is an important feeder into this, into that. Let's address this. Yeah, just trying to give, so I'm kind of a visual guy, so I, I like to see, you know, I hear examples and then I start. I start kind of picturing it and, and get it better, I guess. <laughs> All right. So I'll, I'll use an example at the risk of making this sound like a, a kind of a website discussion. It's not. It's much broader than that. But a great example that sits at the center of a lot of this is a company's website. So often the website's constructed and it says, we're founded in 1947. We got 50,000 square feet. We got these machines in our facility. Here's the picture of the founder and the current team. And, you know, here's the son-in-law that runs it now. And, and you know, that doesn't do a buyer any good. If they can have substantial amounts of content that answers the questions that their prospects have, that's a first step. But the website becomes a vehicle to make that available to people. And so that content has to be discoverable, which means there has to be good SEO. It has to be about important topics, which means there has to be good market research. When somebody comes to the website, it has to be designed to make it easy for people to raise their hand and say, this is really cool. You guys seem to know what you're talking about. I'd like some more information. And, and that, you know, used to be forms. Increasingly, that's chatbots um, and, and ways that you can engage people in a much less um, kind of uh, threatening way as buyers become more skeptical online. But then beyond that, how do you send that information to a sales rep? How do you quickly push that person 
that said, yes, I'm interested in understanding more about how you solve this problem that I have to a meeting with a salesperson, not in a pushy way, but in an appropriate way. Because if you ask them to submit a form and then somebody tries emailing them, calling them 17 times over the next three weeks, never reaches them and just pisses them off, that doesn't do anybody any good. So you want to get it to a meeting quickly. And then once you've got a meeting with them, you want your salesperson to be able to look and see what pages on the website that person's gone to. A great example that I often use, if you see that somebody has visited the page for your like ultimate automatic machine, and every time they look at that, then they go back and they look at the semi-automatic version of it. What great information for your salesperson to have when they get ready for that meeting. You know, then you don't have to say, you know, what model do you want? You can say, geez, experience tells me people often are trying to decide how, to what degree they should automate. Is that something you all are wrestling with? And now you've got a great intuitive, authoritative, natural conversation. So, you know, again, we talk about that website and there's so many pieces that plug into it and so much information that comes out of it and so much of that integration of marketing and sales. So there's an example for you. No, that's great. And I think one of the other things that as I'm listening to this and, and I know you've you know, when I, you and I chatted before and is, you know, I, I get into, okay, well, measuring all of this and understanding, okay, well, if my salesperson is getting information, what's our conversion rate or what's this, what's our time lag? What's, you know, I, I would think like any process improvement endeavor, it's just measuring becomes a very important component of this and measuring the right yeah, absolutely. And and that right things takes some experiment. There's some great uh, stories out there about Amazon and the process they go through to get to their, the metrics they track and how they measure them. But again, we come back to the difference between the back end of the business and the front end. On the back end, they know the tack time for every piece is made. On the front end, you ask them what the sales cycle is, the average deal size. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. It's probably approximately. And, and that dissonance represents a huge opportunity. So Technology becomes important. The expectation of accountability and consistency of people using the tools becomes important. If you do that, then it's easy to produce the data and produce the data, not just in some kind of a big brother way so that somebody goes into a meeting with the sales manager and gets their knuckles whacked with the ruler, but rather in a way that helps the salesperson be really efficient and manage their territory and say, geez, I haven't been in touch with this target account in a while. Or this person just changed jobs. This person that we sold to successfully, this company for years, now working at this target account that we've got. What a great opportunity to make that intuitive and right in front of them. It 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 helps so much. So, you know, certainly there are some 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 fairly standard sorts of metrics that you can look at. You know, what's your success rate in getting found for certain key terms, certain kinds of questions. But then, not just getting found, but actually getting clicked. And people amazingly often overlook that. People pay a ton of money for SEO and never connect the dots on how much that actually drives traffic to their website. But then right. traffic is a vanity a metric that marketing people love. But what percent of those people that come to your website actually convert to leads? And what right. percent of those leads do you convert to meetings? That's part of the reason it's so important to push those dots close together. And from leads to meetings and from meetings to qualified forecastable opportunities and then from opportunities to revenue and you know, often overlooked is from that first revenue to later revenue. What's the time that that often takes? Because that first order, everyone says it's the most expensive to get, and then you want to get repeat orders from people. <laughs> so you can track all of those along the way, but also certain predictive metrics. If you know, for instance, that um, from 
integrating data sources and from observing user behavior on your website, if you know that if you have two people from the same company, they're engaging with your content and um, they open emails consistently within an hour of you sending them and they have this certain kind of company profile, if you know that that increases your, your um, predictable score, the likelihood that you'll be able to close a deal with them, then that helps you allocate resources. So there's all different ways but it all comes down to technology and consistency and using the tools. Yeah, that's that's actually, you know, a ton to think about right there. Um, you know, it's, uh, my mind's actually just kind of spinning with, you know, I just, just knowing a lot of companies, they struggle with that side of things because that's, you know, they're not, they're, they're focused on, hey, let's busy activity, but maybe not understanding right. where, you know, just because we're doing something doesn't mean it's doing anything, right? right? And so, you know, I, that just that's tremendous information and insight in terms of saying, Hey, maybe we can be more effective. And that's really what it's all about being effective with what you're, with what you're doing. So, so we're, we're kind of pushing up against time here at any, any last thoughts. I know you even had a, a diagnostic you wanted to offer to, to our listeners. And, uh, you know, so maybe talk about that just, just for a minute. Yeah. So I'd say two quick things, both along the lines of diagnostics. First of all, it's possible. We think of salespeople as being a black box. And again, this is about all revenue growth, not just salespeople, but salespeople have to be able to sell and salespeople come from a bell curve just like the rest of us. And that means most salespeople are average and most companies that you're working with have above average products. And so they need second or third standard deviation salespeople. And it's possible to empirically determine who those are. So that's, that's one type of diagnostic, a, a sales candidate assessment that I think makes a lot of sense. The other is my ORE diagnostic that I'd be happy to share with people through your site or this podcast mm -hmm. site or whatever is the most most uh, efficient manner. But it gives people a framework to think about, again, not, oh my goodness, this is so enormous, where do I start? But okay, this makes sense. I see how it fits together and here's some priorities that I could start to work on. Yeah, that's great. And, and I, I appreciate that, Ed. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll work on getting that, uh, just for our listeners, we'll work on getting that in the comments on the, on the YouTube channel and uh, your contact information. I mean, just just the insights and the expertise you brought to uh, today's show. We really, really appreciate it. And uh, Kevin, I know it looks like you want to. I've always here. say, but I know yeah. Kevin, Kevin's like, I'll, I'll talk anytime, <laughs> anywhere, anyplace. Well, I, I think one way to kind of a good takeaway, there's a lot of great takeaways from today. Ned. Thank you for your time. But I think one great is that I think now having process procedures that you put to your product across your company creates Clarity. Clarity creates understanding. Understanding creates what we all want in the end, value for our company, both currently and especially whenever we're getting ready to transition, look at that next step or whatever that may be for us, for the generation behind us, for you know the rest of our, our days. Uh, that's a goal here on this show. So I think that this is perfect timing and perfectly aligns with that. Thanks again, Ed, for your time. Well, it's been my pleasure. You gentlemen are gracious to have me and I, I, I love this kind of conversation. So, uh, you know, thanks very much for letting me join you. Yeah, thanks, Ed. We'll look forward to maybe getting you back again, uh, you know, in the future here and appreciate the insight. And for all of our listeners, thank you very much and uh, hope you have a great rest of your day. To learn more about James Moore and Company's manufacturing services, go to jmco.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our More on Manufacturing series to receive updates when new videos and podcasts are released. If you'd like to be a guest, or if there's a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, contact us on our website.
You can also follow us on social media for more news as the landscape on manufacturing continues to rapidly evolve.